Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we read verses 1 to 9, 39 and 40, and then some verses from 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her but to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him but to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent, for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. Each one has this gift uh, sorry, one has this gift, another has that. Now to the married, sorry, the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Then verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And then we turn to First Timothy chapter five, uh, page one one nine three. And we are reading from verse 3. Paul writing again um, about seven, eight years later uh, with regard to widows. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them, that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Amen.
Let us turn in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. That's where we have now reached. Page 1148. If you are using the Church Bible. As we mentioned last week, Paul has now finished the matters that he wants to address with the church. And he's now dealing with the issues that the Corinthians have raised with him, probably in the form of a letter. And we saw last time uh, how in this chapter 7, he's dealing with issues relating to marriage and the marital relationship. The whole chapter is devoted to different scenarios that they are asking about. And the important background is this, that evidently there is a group in the congregation who believe and teach that Christians should abstain from sexual relations within marriage, that Christians should even avoid marriage, and, in fact, as we'll see next time, withdraw from marriage if they are already married. And this group, they're a group that of purists or ascetics, uh, of so-called super-spiritual, they make this a test of spirituality. We believe and we have taken the, slo- the words of verse 1b as their slogan that Paul quotes back to them. They have been saying in Corinth, it is good for a man uh, not to have sexual relations with a woman. And if you're using NIV and you weren't here last week, you will see that that's not the main translation, but we showed that to be the correct translation last week. And Paul uh, then corrects that view, that teaching in verses 2 to 7 making a single point to believers who are married. And his point is this, do not abstain from sexual relations within your marriage. And we saw how the whole passage is structured in such a way, 1 to 7, that verse 5a is central and emphasized, where Paul writes, Stop defrauding one another. It's a command, and it's in the plural, and it's a keep on uh, uh, making sure that you don't defraud one another in this area. He wants them, when this letter is read in church, and their questions are being answered in it, he wants these words to ring in their ears as they leave the beating place. Stop defrauding one another of your sexual relationship within marriage. We come then this morning to verses 8 and 9 where Paul makes an indisputable reference to widows. We're also going to deal with verses 39 and 40 where he refers to widows again. Uh, You will be relieved to hear that there's only one word in the verses this morning 
that we need to give attention to today. It is the word translated as unmarried in verse uh, 8. It actually occurs only once in verse 8. The NIV is wrong again to include it. In the second statement, it is good for them to stay unmarried. It literally is, it is good for them to remain as I am. So, NIV, New King James, um, ESV, all translate this opening statement as, Now I say to the unmarried. The word that Paul uses here occurs three other times in this chapter. Verse 11, verse 32, and verse 34. Uh, And it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. So the only light that we can get and how this word is used is here and then bearing in mind how it was used in wider Greek literature. In English, the word unmarried, um, we use it to describe single persons, those never before married. That's chiefly, uh, as I understand it, how we use the unmarried. He is unmarried. She is unmarried. Uh, They do not have a husband or a wife. However, Gordon Fee, in his commentary, and it's a large commentary in 1 Corinthians produces evidence to suggest the word Paul uses should be translated widowers. Widowers, not unmarried. In Paul's day, this word that he uses was used in wider Greek and Roman society to describe men who had been married and whose wives were dead. It was the common word for widower. There was another word that came into much greater use later, but not at this period. In verse 11 then, when Paul uses the word again, it's interesting and significant that he uses it of a woman who is separated from her husband. So, a woman who has previously been married and because of the Corinthian teaching has now separated from her husband and Paul uses the word, the same word as here. And it obviously has a reference there in verse 11 to those previously but no longer married. So it's that kind of word. Now when we keep in mind what we saw last time, verses 1 to 7, and what we shall see throughout this chapter, that Paul addresses husbands and wives jointly, men and women jointly. He doesn't dress one group and not the other. And in fact, 12 times he addresses men and women together. Then it makes eminent sense as Fee suggests, to translate this as widowers. The widowers are the men that Paul is addressing, even as the widows are the women whom Paul uh, is addressing. Because in both cases, uh, he's dealing with those whose spouses have died. And it also makes sense contextually, because it means now we don't have 
a word dropped in that applies to the singles when Paul doesn't come to deal with the singles until verse 25. So all of that evidence um, persuades me to take it not as the unmarried, the singles, but now I say to the widowers and to the widows. And so my sermon is going to be based around that interpretation uh, and understanding of the word. Let's come then, after that rather lengthy introduction, to three points this morning. First of all, Paul's counsel to widowers and widows. Paul's counsel or his advice. We're looking here at verse 8. Chapter 7, when we look at it in its entirety, is one of the least forceful sections in the whole letter to the Corinthians. Before this, when Paul was dealing uh, with immorality in chapter 6 within the church, he was very clear, very straight down the line, this is what you must do. The man who is living with his stepmother, he won't repent. He's got to be put out of the church. Those of you who have fallen into immorality and are going to the prostitutes, you've got to stop doing it. And we saw that same pattern as he challenged the ideas about wisdom and knowledge and other things uh, as well. But here now in chapter 7, we see a different kind of language uh, that he uses. And this less forceful uh, and um, uh, didactic approach is reflected in the language he uses to answer their questions. For example, the phrase, I say, is used five times. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 12, verse 19, sorry, verse 29, Verse 35. And then there's a phrase such as, it is good. Verse 8. He doesn't say it is commanded. He says it is good. And then with the phrase, verse 9, it is better. So there's a difference between what is good and what is better. Then verse 25, he'll say, I have not a commandment. And in verse 7 and verse 32, he will say, I wish. It's a wish. It's a preference. And then in verse 25 and verse 40, he says, he talks about my judgment. This is the kind of language that we have here in this chapter. Uh, I say, it is good, it is better, I have not a commandment, my judgment, I wish. That's a different approach that Paul um, is uh, displaying at this point. Now, it doesn't mean that here are sections of the letter that the Corinthians can just say, well, we, we skip over those. Paul's only saying and he's only thinking and he's only wishing. This is still scripture, but there is a difference uh, because Paul is dealing with an issue now which um, is a matter of personal decision and judgment. Only once 
Does he use the verb or does he say, I command? Verse 10, we'll come to that next time. Now, we saw the last time, verse 5a, there are commands in this chapter. And we'll see that further. There are commands in the chapter. But the the approach that he takes uh, is different. And this is important to note as we come to verses 8 and 9 and verses 39 and 40 addressed to the widowers and the widows. Paul does not address them in terms of this is right and that is wrong in relation to marriage. Come on in, folks. Um, So he doesn't say that. Uh, Paul has a wish. Paul has a preference. Even what he might call a rule of thumb. It is good for them if they remain even as I am. It is good for um, the widower, the widow to stay single. We noted last time Paul is single. In the light of verse 8, his singleness may well be that of widowhood. Because he's speaking here to widowers and widows. And he says, I wish that people would stay even as I am. And that would give some credence to the fact that he was a widower. Now, whatever the reason for his singleness, Paul has no command for widowers and widows to obey. There is no law that forbids remarriage. The Old Testament indeed not only permitted that, but prescribed that in the kinsman redeemer. Equally, Paul does not issue a command that requires remarriage or forbids remarriage. Verse 39, Paul states, The widow is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. Paul then, verse 8, gives advice to widowers and widows for them to act on prayerfully, thoughtfully, and individually in, within the congregation. A year later, Paul will write to the church in Rome uh, about widows. Chapter 7, verse 1. If her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And in 1 Timothy 5, writing in the 60s, to the church in Ephesus, in a lengthy section dealing with widows, Paul desires younger widows to marry, whilst widows over 60 with a godly reputation and no family support could receive and would receive church support. That's Paul's advice, Paul's counsel to widowers and to widows. The decision to remarry or not is up to the individual widower or widow. Just as the decision of a single person not previously married is up to the male or female to decide. It's not for Paul. It's not for the church. And that is still the case. Each must decide. 
Um, if you're not yet married, or if you're not yet of the age to marry, um, it's your decision. If you're a widow or a widower, uh, it's your decision whether to continue uh, in your present state or to remarry. And you, how do you make a decision? Well, you take into account circumstances. You use the word and prayer and providence uh, whether to marry for the first time or to remarry following the death of a spouse. There's no right, there's no wrong. It's not a betrayal of a dead spouse as sometimes people are given to feel and to think if a widow or widower remarries. It's not a sign that they'd had an unhappy, unfulfilled marriage previously. You see, what Paul has written in verse 7, each one has his own gift from God. One in this manner, another in that, applies to the bereaved person also. So keep that verse in mind because it influences how I interpret things later on and understand what Paul writes later on. So Paul's counsel to widowers and widows. But this sermon uh, is to be a benefit to all of us this morning. And so there's a wider application we can make from Paul's approach here in this matter. And the wider application is this. There are matters in the Christian life that are, com that are uh, covered by the commands of Scripture. With the Ten Commandments. With Jesus' summary of the law. To love God, to love our neighbour, to love ourselves. And there's various other commands throughout the scriptures. And those are things we don't have a choice in. If we say, I trust in Jesus Christ as my saviour, I love him as my Lord, then as our fourth term of membership reminds us, we are obligated to live a life consistent with that profession. But there are many areas, perhaps most areas uh, in our Christian life where there is not a command of Scripture. There's not a right and there's not a wrong. It's, there's not a right or wrong um, in many jobs that are open to us. There are some wrongs, but there's a whole realm of jobs that is open to us. There's not a right and a wrong in terms of who uh, an individual will marry, as we'll see later. Uh, and when we come to make decisions about those matters, we will take advice if we're wise. We'll listen to our families. We'll take advice from friends. Uh, and there will be times, uh, as many of you do, when you will seek the advice of the elders. Uh, and uh, they will give you advice. Uh, but even then, when that advice is given, uh, I think Paul is saying here, uh, even then, uh, there's two things that he's saying. First of all, it's not by way of command. So it's not something that somebody's obligated to do. Uh, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But equally, 
that advice is on a different level from what a friend might get. Paul alludes here in uh, verse 40 and in verse 25 to the judgments that he gives. And look at what he says. I'm a man who's trustworthy. In other words, God has put me into a position of leadership. He's given me gifts. Uh, and then he speaks in verse 40. In my judgment, yes, she's happier. She stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul is giving a judgment by the Spirit of God. So, um, I, um, when um, you're working through situations in your life, yes, take advice. But within that advice, it seems that you should take particular attention, not that you must obey, but that you must consider with greater care what your elders say to you. Because they are men that God has placed over you. They are men who pray for you. They are men who see you and who know you and who want God's best for you. Uh, and uh, on that basis, they give advice. And they will give it on the basis of experience. They'll give it on the basis of maturity. They'll give it on the basis of what is good for the church and so on. And when you receive it, you're to take it seriously. You're considered carefully. You're to evaluate it prayerfully. Um, but even in that advice, elders cannot and do not lord it over your conscience. It is to the Lord, as Paul writes later, that each one will have to give account in those matters. So, Paul's counsel then to widowers and widows. Let's notice then, secondly, Paul's command to widowers and widows. Paul's command. So if you were in the circumstance of being widowed, or if you are in that situation, uh, or uh, you've no longer married for some other reason, what kind of personal circumstances might a person need to bear in mind? Well, we could uh, come up with any number of situations. I'm just going to throw out two illustrations. Imagine a husband bereaved of his wife with a very young family. He would be perfectly justified in thinking they need a woman in their lives to be a mother to them. And I need a wife to care for them. And so to desire to remarry for their sake. Or what if someone is bereaved of their spouse whilst they're young. And they have experienced the blessing of that companionship and closeness in marriage. And they pine for it. Would that not be a circumstance where if somebody expressed that to you. Would we not be inclined to say, well, you know, think seriously, pray. We will pray with you regarding the possibility of remarriage. Now, in verse 9, and this is where we're, that's by way of background to what we're coming to now in verse 9. Paul addresses a situation in which remarriage, and listen to this carefully, is the right and only 
alternative for all Christians. It's the right and only alternative for all Christians. If they cannot exercise self-control, and here we have the command, let them marry. It's in the third person. It's different from me saying to John, get married. It's rather, let him get married. Let them get married. For it is better to marry than to burn. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for those who have felt uncomfortable with this text as they have often heard it used. My hand would be the first up in the air. And misunderstood. It is one of the most misunderstood texts in scripture. It's often taken to apply to the single who's never been married. Paul is writing at this point to widowers and widows who have been married. And he's saying, he's speaking into the context of their lives and their experience and what they have lost and what they desire. This verse then must not be ripped out of its context in this letter. Or indeed of the context that Paul is addressing the church in Corinth. This text is not to be quoted to a single man or woman who feasts their eyes on and feeds their mind with sexual images in magazines or on the web that leaves them in a state of heightened, constant lust. If you cannot exercise self-control, get married, for it's better to marry than to burn. That's a total and utter misuse of this text. That's not what Paul is addressing. If Paul had that young man or young woman in front of him who's feeding their mind with such images, he would have a very different command to them. And it would be to stop it and to repent of it and to exercise self-control. The man and the woman in question here has been a husband or a wife. They have known the blessing and the inexpressible beauty of the sexual relationship. The context is they had been married, whether for few or many years, because marriage, not singleness, was their gift from God. Verse 7. And the question now is, what is their gift in the changed circumstance of their lives? Is marriage still their gift from God? Or is their gift to be single from this point on? How will they know? How will they decide? Well, I alluded to a couple of things at the beginning that might influence their thinking. But one factor, and a very important one will be, says Paul, can I live without the physical intimacy that I knew within marriage? Paul is no prude or whatever that word is that um, somehow 
doesn't appreciate the way God has made male and female and ordained marriage and uh, whether he has been married or uh, not been married, he understands how God has made and what God gives in marriage. And so the fact there will be This will be a very important one. Can I live without the physical intimacy that I knew within marriage? If they can't, and it would not be a sin to answer, no, I can't, they are not to resort to the prostitutes that abound in Corinth that some Christians are going to And they're going, saying, well, it doesn't matter what I do in or with my body. Paul says, that's not on. That's not an option. Nor does he suggest that they join the ascetics group in the congregation. Well, just join us. And just pretend you are so spiritual, you don't need the sexual relationship. It's all the time battling with an underlying unmet desire for physical intimacy. And in the context, surely points, Paul's point is, if you do not have the gift of singleness, such as he has, if instead as a widow or a widower you yearn for the physical intimacy that you knew in marriage, let them marry. Don't put any stumbling block in their path. It's an earnest command. In other words, it says, let them get married once and for all. Don't hold them back. Now, if you take this text at its face value, which I hinted at earlier when I was asking for the hands up, as many have done in the past, and many do in the present, it portrays marriage as a grudging concession on the part of Paul. To quote Gordon Fee, it portrays marriage as the remedy for the sexual desire of inflamed youth. That's not what Paul is talking about. To take the text with its double context in view, That these are widows, widowers, that there's immorality and Corinth to which Christians are going and by which they're tempted. That's the double context to take it that way as we have done. Teaches remarriage is the right course for widowers and widows whose gift from God evidently continues to be that of marriage, not singleness. That's Paul's command. And you see now why I use the strong phrase at the beginning. He addresses a situation in which remarriage is the right and only alternative for all Christians. If they have the gift of marriage, the only right place to express that sexual intimacy that they desire is within marriage. Let's notice then thirdly this morning Paul's condition, or if you want another word, Paul's constraint on widows uh, or widowers and widows. 
We're coming back now to verses 39 and 40. And because our time is gone, we're going to have to deal with this uh, rather more quickly. We're coming back to three words in the Greek, four words in English, that Paul adds at the end of verse 39 as he again addresses those who would remarry. He says, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. You are a believer. You have been saved by Christ from your sin. You must take seriously and you must obey. This is not advice. Uh, This is a condition. This is a requirement. This is a restriction. That you must marry as a believer only someone else who clearly and unmistakably loves and serves Christ. It's not enough for Paul that they would say, I generally believe in God. I know there's a God. It's not enough that they are maybe at church services. Paul says, are they in the Lord? Young people, that's what you need to establish before you start dating someone. Is this young person in the Lord? And to take it in this context here, uh, if somebody's going to remarry, uh, then the question they've got to establish at the very beginning is, is this person to whom I have an attraction, are they in the Lord? Can they speak of a personal faith, a daily walk with Jesus Christ, that he is the love, that he is the delight of their lives? That's the only condition Paul places. He doesn't make it a requirement that they are mature in Christ. He doesn't make it a requirement that they're from the same social class or that they're the same level of education or the same economic background or that they're from the same nation and we could add many more things. He doesn't say they should wait a certain length of time out of respect for the deceased before they remarry. Paul gives the individual believer complete freedom on all such matters. Only one condition, only in the Lord. And that's the consistent teaching of Scripture, Old and New Testament. And to do otherwise, um, these uh, people that are considering remarriage to Potentially, if they were to do it to an unbeliever, sometimes it's said, well, they will be converted. I will pray for their conversion. Well, you and I convert no one. God does. And we've no grounds to believe that God will answer a prayer that is the fruit of an act of disobedience to his revealed will. Would you or I run out in front of a car? And pray that God would keep you from being killed by the car. No, we wouldn't. Should a believer take an unbeliever in marriage and pray that God will save them? So, Paul's condition, only in the Lord. And all of us, let's write that on our mind this morning. 
they're not married uh, and at some point in the future uh, you desire to be married or if you are married and uh, sadly you lose your marriage partner and you contemplate remarriage Paul says only in the Lord now that is what a primary school was called and as the lowest common denominator the lowest common denominator uh, I think it's good to have the highest common factor in a marriage and I think we should think in terms of it's not a commandment of Paul it can't be a commandment of parents but I think it's good it's better to think of well I'm looking for someone who will have the same understanding of how a husband and wife are to relate to each other um, from scripture, headship and submission. I'm looking for someone who's the same commitment to the church of Christ. I'm looking for someone who's the same priorities in terms of discipleship and bringing up children. I'm looking for someone who's the same values in terms of material things. The same vision for the lost around me. Those are additional factors and I think there's the lowest common denominator and then there are other factors that uh, I think make compatibility and the ability to work together and to live together so that it doesn't end um, tragically um, in divorce, uh, that those things are important. So Paul's uh, words then to the widows and widowers, uh, he has this counsel, he gives this command and he places this condition upon them because they are people who are in the Lord. And that begs the question this morning um, for anyone, for all of us to think about here this morning, are you in the Lord? Because it is Christ uh, who is to be Saviour and Lord in our lives. Only he can save you from your sin. Your wife, your husband cannot do that. Um, no other relationship uh, is more important. Marriage is not more important. Singleness is not more important than being in the Lord. Being in Christ as a new creation. And then in Christ we hear Paul's counsel. In Christ we obey Paul's command. In Christ we meet Paul's condition. Amen. Well, let's uh, take some moments to pray together. Um,